The scripture passage this morning um, will be in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. If you would like to turn there with me, you can find that on page 1599 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 48. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in, and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take this mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be their king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying this colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone or on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. 
When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it to a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Thanks, Becca. Hey, everyone. Okay, I only got through half of my sermon last hour. So I'm going to try to be briefer this time. I, when I was in college, about my second year, I was 19 years old, and I was doing about half, spent about half of my time doing college ministry, which is not what you should be doing when you're a college student. You should probably date someone. Um, just kidding. Sorry. Um, you should be studying. Come on. And then um, I sat down with a pastor of my church at the time, which I felt like was struggling with reaching out to college students. And we had a, we only had one service at nine o'clock, and it was hard to get my hungover friends up. And we just, there were a bunch of stuff we did that just wasn't for reaching students, right? And so I talked to them about this, and we had a kind of a long discussion about, like, how the church could reach out to college students better. And at the end of it, he, like, listened very politely, and then he kind of looked at me, and he said, Nick, there's all kinds of things you can do in a church, and, like, I know you're trying to, like, tell people about Jesus on campus, but at the end of the day, like, the problem is unbelief. People don't want to believe. They don't want to trust God, or they don't want to follow God. And you can pretend that it's all like we don't have the right arguments in front of them or like that we didn't have the right welcome ministry, but that's really not what it is. And I remember at 19 years old, like that really grating on me, right? Um, by that point, I had, I had been a Christian for a couple of years, like seriously. I had read through the whole Bible by that point. And there were, there were two huge reasons why I think that that grated on me. The, the first is, is that on some level, I actually knew he was right. Like if you read through the whole Bible and you look at, all of the things that God is on about. The sin that comes up the most, the things that he's the most upset about, the thing that creates the worst s results, is unbelief. It is people refusing to believe it. There's no question about that. And that's difficult, right? And then, but then at the same time, I knew that, um, I, I, like, I knew that he was wrong, too. And I partly knew he was wrong because I knew him well enough that he was kind of coasting in the ministry. I knew on some level— he was being kind of loveless and lazy. And, like, I knew there was something off, and I also knew ha from having read the Bible that not every situation in which people struggle to believe in God and to, and to believe in Jesus and to do what he says is counted as unbelief. They're not all counted that way, right? There's a guy who's like, he, he's like, if you can heal my daughter, do it. And Jesus is like, what do you mean if? And the guy's like, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And Jesus is like, that's good enough. We'll, do, we'll work with that, right? In the, book of, in the book of Jude, right, it says— um, be merciful to those who doubt, right? So somebody's struggling with belief, and he doesn't say, well, that's unbelief, and you're going to die, right? And, and, and Paul says in First Timothy, he said, even when I was persecuting the church before I was a Christian, when I was persecuting the church, including I administered over the killing of some Christians, he, said, he says in First Timothy, I believe God didn't kill me or destroy me. I believe his mercy drew me because he knew that on some level I was functioning in ignorance, right? And so it, it took me about 20 years to like— Try to sort out how do you conceptualize this, this human struggle with belief and how it functions with God. Um, and then I also realized as I was working this out that I had become that pastor. Like I realized that my heart kind of was the same as his. I was like, 
wait, no, I, I'm kind of loveless and lazy and angry about people who don't want to come to Jesus. Like, I have a terrible, a terrible heart about that. Like, I, I need help, but we're, I'm going to deal with that. We're going we're gonna to talk about the ways to conceptualize people struggling to believe. Okay, so um, I think in Scripture there's at least five different categories of people struggling to believe, right? One is ignorance, right? Which is basically an educational problem. Like, they just don't know the stuff. Like, I was at somebody's house this week who asked me to come over and explain some things, and this, and this person didn't know what the big and the little numbers in the Bible was. I was like, have you ever heard of Daniel and the lions? And she was like, no, should I? Right? That's just ignorance. She just didn't know, right? And then there's non-belief, which non-belief would be something like, I know some of the stuff, but I don't feel like I've interacted with good enough reasons to really put my full trust in Jesus, right? And doubt would be, like, I know all this stuff. In fact, somebody who is struggling with doubt, they may know 10 times more than you. But they're still, it's a heart issue. They're just, they're having trouble believing for some reason. They're struggling with like really believing, right? And disbelief is an issue of imagination. It's an issue of possibilities, right? It's, it's seeing, it's seeing the truth of the gospel as impossible, Right? So I remember, I've, ex- I've shared the gospel with people before and talked about what Jesus has done and would do for us. And I've had people both say, I don't think I can believe in that because it seems too good to be true. And I've also had people say, I can't believe in that because it's too pessimistic and negative. <laughs> and two things. One, whenever somebody tells me they can't do something or they can't believe in something, as a pastor, one of the things I try to do to help them is say, okay, before—so you may not believe in this, but let's start by being fully intellectually and emotionally honest and just put in the word won't for the word can't. Right? So when somebody says, I can't—I can't stand my marriage. It's too terrible. I, I say, okay, wait, okay. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's right. But let's start by being honest. Say out loud, I won't stay in my marriage because it's too terrible. Stay out. Just use the right language, first of all. Be honest with yourself, okay? But then also, um, it's an issue of imagination, right? Disbelief is I can't conceive of the possibility. Like, there's no rational argument why God can't be that good. You just, because of your experiences and what you expect and what you imagine the world is, you just can't think it's that good or that bad, right? And then unbelief in the Bible is a category that is morally blameworthy. Unbelief is you know enough in the right way that you should believe and you refuse to believe. In, in, the, in the language of the New Testament, it is just the word faith with the letter A in front of it. It's no faith. But not just atheism, but a refusal of faith, a rejection of faith. Um, it would be similar um, in English now to call somebody a denier like a climate denier or a Holocaust denier or something like that. It's like, I'm going to use that word because you are supposed to be socially shamed because you should have enough information and evidence that you ought to believe it. And you won't believe it, and it's going to affect your life and everybody else's life for you not believing it. And I can't accept that you, not, you don't believe it. So I'm going to use this word. Does that make sense? Unbelief is kind of like that. It's a negative pejorative word. So for example, in in the book of Hebrews, there's a section where the author of Hebrews is really trying to help the readers not fall into this. And he says this in ch- chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, 
unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see the logic there? He, he, he speaks in parallel that the, un, the unbelieving heart in this context is a sinful heart. He sees it as a moral problem, right? And he says, therefore, the, the, what you need is encouragement. People need to be like, don't do that. Don't be like that. You need somebody to get in your face and say, and to confront you and say, don't let your heart do that. And, and what can't you let your heart do? He says, don't allow your heart to be hardened toward God and therefore succumb to what? Sin's deceitfulness, right? There's, there's a lie that the unbelieving heart holds on to, and it's a lie that liberates you from any responsibility to God in your own mind. And so what it does is it hardens you towards God, and it liberates you to do whatever you want, and it's rooted in sin's deceitfulness. And that will happen to each of us if we don't continually encourage and confront each other not to fall into that. Because as human beings, without divine grace and help, without the presence of the Spirit and the power of the gospel, we are always falling back into unbelief. Right now, here's a couple things that we need to know about this array. One is, um, unbelief in the scriptures is the only damnable sin. Okay, now any sin can be damnable because all are treason against God. But there is only one that is irredeemable. And it is unbelief. It's not fornicating. It's not homosexual sex. It's not murder. It's not gossip. It is unbelief. Because, and here's why. Because the way God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and the way he says he's interacting with the human race— is as a redeemer. Okay, that's his gig. That's what he's doing. He shows himself to be a redeemer. So what he's doing at, in this portion of history, um, before he comes back as the king, he claims to be in this, in this moment of time, he's redeeming, right? And so the th what is the only thing that completely gets in the way of redemption? There's only one thing. Sin can be redeemed. All sin can be redeemed. The only thing that— interposes itself to keep redemption from happening is its refusal. That's it. And so the only thing that will destroy you, according to King Jesus, is unbelief. Now here's the second thing you need to understand about unbelief in the scriptures. There are these different ways to struggle with belief. And almost everybody struggles with them at some point. I've struggled with a couple of them my whole life. I don't know of any moment in my life where I have not lived in my heart in the presence of doubt. I just—I come from a skeptical line. It's part of my temperament. I'm a melancholy, skeptical person, okay? And I think that that's driven me deeper into things than I ever would have gone if I was happy-go-lucky, and hopefully you benefit from that, okay? But that's—we all struggle with those things. But here's what you need to understand about, about unbelief. Unbelief, because it is tied in with what the book of Hebrews calls sin's deceitfulness— does not admit that it's unbelief. It always masquerades as one or more of the other four. Okay? So if, like, you won't believe, and I say, is it unbelief? Right? What, what that part of your heart will say is, no. 
no, I'm just struggling right now. I just, I have some doubts. I don't know what to do about it. Or your heart will say, I don't have good reasons. Like, I'm, I, like I, if I had the right reasons, if you, if you helped me find the right arguments and they show, were shown to be true, then I would believe. Or like, no, I, I mean, I kind of want to believe. I just, I'm struggling with the beauty of the thing. Like, how can, in a world this broken, what God is doing be that great? And I just, I can't believe it's true. I have trouble with disbelief. I don't know what to do about it, right? Or I just don't know enough. Maybe if I learned a little more, then I could believe, right? And so, and so unbelief will always pretend it is one or more of those other ones. Because it's part of sin's deceitfulness, it wants to hide. Because what happens to it, if you find it, is that you have to kill it, right? So like, it's trying to save its own life, right? The Bible in other places calls this the flesh, right? The part of us that wants nothing to do with Jesus, right? And so, so how do you figure out what it is? How do you figure out if your struggle is just one of these other four things and you need a certain other kind of treatment or unbelief? And the, the answer, I think, now there's no perfect answer to this because ultimately it's a moral question. You have to, you have to be true. You have to, you have to, God will either convict you or you have to like sort out yourself or do some soul searching. But there are, there is a way to think it through. And that's this, that I think. There's five things. And all of them have a primary treatment. And if you are treated with the primary treatment and it doesn't help you, then it could be that it's not that thing. It could be unbelief. So for example, the treatment for ignorance is education, right? It's to get the information that you don't have so that you have the information you can make a decision. And so if you feel like your issue is you don't have enough information, you should be actively seeking more information. And if as you get more information, it doesn't help, then maybe your issue is unbelief. I mean, I've talked to people before that they know way less than I think they should before they believe, and they believe. And there's other people like you could, ne- you could give them five PhDs, and they would—they'd never have enough information, right? And then I've known people for non-belief where like they really have some intellectual hang-ups. They know kind of the Christian story and claims, but they're like, well, what about suffering? And how can God be like good? And, or like, why is God so hidden? If God wants to speak and show himself, why is he so hidden? There's a whole bunch of questions like that. And they're like, can you help me understand? And so you can offer. There's reasons for all that stuff, and you can find them. It's not that hard. And if the presence of those arguments, those reasons, doesn't help, they're perfectly rational, they're perfectly clear, doesn't help. It's possible the issue isn't non-belief, but unbelief masquerading as non-belief, right? If it's doubt, if you're struggling in doubt, and people do what the book of Jude says, they give you mercy, right? The book of Jude says, be merciful to those who are doubting. If you're in doubt and people give you mercy, and it kind of drives you further away from God, because you're—because what mercy basically says is, if I love you, ultimately God is going to write you, and you're going to be fine, and you're going to come— completely to Jesus again and give your whole life to him entirely. And you can even do that now when you're struggling. Well, if doubt is a—is mass—is unbelief masquerading, unbelief wants to use doubt to do whatever you want. And—but if doubt is real doubt, you might be suffering, but you can still obey in suffering. You can still obey in doubt. You can still walk with Jesus even if you're not even sure he's there. If you feel like every time you pray, you're praying to the ceiling, and you don't know what God is doing in your life, and you're so frustrated, you can still follow King Jesus when you feel that way. Especially if other people are merciful to you, and you know that they are standing in for God and His mercy for you. But if that annoys you, (laughs) and you're like, quit that, because you kind of want 
You want a graceful exit. You want to be able to slide down. Mercy is like a stop in that slide where somebody's like, I got you. And you're like, no, I'm actually trying to fall. I'm, tr I'm, I'm trying to fall. Right? Like, then, that, then you know it's unbelief pretending to be doubt. Do you see how that works? So for, for disbelief, it would be worship or understanding the beauty of the gospel. It's, it would be coming to the gospel not for logical arguments, but for its aesthetic quality, its beauty, how good God is, how beautiful what he's done is, how generous the things he's done is, all the moral beauty and goodness and sweetness of the truth. And that in, but yet situated in the carnage of sin and death and hell, that you have a real world with a beautiful redeeming God, and there's this intersection of the two, and you begin to see the landscape of that, and you're like, no, that is real. That can be real. Like a sunset over a horrific storm, that's a hurricane, you got 70 foot waves, and you got a little bit of light cooking through, and it's the most beautiful and horrific thing you've ever seen. I live in Florida. That could be real. You see, like there's, there's a treatment for each one, and if you receive the treatment for each one, and you can treat yourself with the treatment for each one, and you can treat others with the treatment for each one, and if it doesn't get better, that's evidence that it may very well be unbelief. And Jesus wants to tell us that like, listen, we can solve all these other ones, but if we don't call unbelief what it is, if we allow pride to fester, and if we— and we don't face it and confront it and then repent of it and put it away and trust God in full humility and follow him as king unreservedly. We can't be delivered from the only thing that will destroy us. Right? And, and that's, that's what this passage is working on. This is the story Jesus is telling. Um, it's not— the meaning of this parable isn't veiled at all, right? It happens right as Jesus is going into Jerusalem, right when people want to coronate him as king, where people kill him so he won't be king, where God raises him from the dead to show that he is the risen king, and where he then goes away before he comes back. Like, it's not—this is not veiled typology, okay? And so— I want to go really quickly, just like the straightforward came, claims that the kingdom of God is as, as it is, and we have no say about how it is, right? So one, it said that Jesus told a parable because people thought that the kingdom of God was going to come at once. And Jesus tells the parable to say it's not coming at once, and that the time of waiting, developing, and testing is not over. Okay? Many generations of Christians have come and gone thinking that, you know, Jesus would surely come before their life got hard, and that has not happened yet. Okay? We may be in the final days. Jesus might come back tomorrow, and we should all live our lives today like Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. But we should also live our lives like we may be living in the first days of the early church and that Jesus is going to come back 100,000 years from now. Because we don't know either one, right? Also, Jesus tries to make really clear that the stakes are very high, right? If bring them in here and kill them in front of me doesn't tell you that the stakes are high. Or, hey, you take charge of 10 cities. If that doesn't tell you that the, that the, that the positive and negative stakes are incredibly high, I, I don't know what possibly could, right? And then— in each case, the people who don't do well in this parable, it's their attitude. Their attitude towards the king, their unbelief, and their, their, their rejection of their willingness to accept him for who he is, is what ends up destroying them, right? He tells us the parable because we need it, right? He's basically saying, you need this warning. 
It's for you. So that you'll listen to it and you can respond to it, right? And then the catastrophic thing is to not see the king when he comes, right? He comes over the hill to Jerusalem. He says to Jerusalem, if you guys, if you only knew what would give you peace, but this is going to happen, the whole city's going to be destroyed because, why? Because you did not know the time of the king when he came to you. That is, you weren't able or willing to receive redemption when it came to your door. And that that everything rides on that. Right? And then faith expresses loyalty and obedience to the king is the difference. I mean, the difference between the people who take over cities and the people who face execution is the difference between whether or not they know the king when he comes and they turn him in loyalty. And, and I know that for some people, they've, they've heard the mythology that like, you know, the Bible has like two gods and there's like the main God of the Old Testament and then there's like really nice Jesus in the New Testament who pets bunnies and like creates butterflies with a wave of his hand. And that's, the, 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 then, but the problem is at some point you should read the Bible and in the Bible that's, I mean, that's not true at all. First of all, the Old Testament God is incredibly gracious. But they, it turns out they're the same God, right? So in the Old Testament, God, when he reveals himself to Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and, sa- and faithfulness, right? And, and he, loving people to generations. And like everywhere in the Old Testament, God is being gracious and gracious and gracious. He waits 500 years to punish the Canaanites. He waits 500 years to send the Israelites into exile. And then he brings them back 70 years later. One generation, right? So that's not a long time out. Okay, and so, and so people oftentimes miss when Jesus is stern. So because this is a parable, sometimes people are like, well, Jesus isn't being that stern. No, Jesus is saying in the most unveiled possible way that those who hate that he is king will in some sense in final judgment experiencing something like being hauled in front of a king of whom you've become his enemy and being killed in front of him. Now, if you can find a more drastic threat in the Old Testament— Like, I'm open to it, okay? But I don't know of one. And he is predicting, and and then he goes over the hill and he predicts the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the history of the destruction of Jerusalem. It is one of the greatest bloodbaths of all of ancient history. The the level of horrificness of Titus' siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, 600,000 lower class people starved to death. The Jewish person who was taken captive and was made to count the dead bodies coming out of the city of Jerusalem put the number at 1.1 million. 1.1 million. Women, children, right? And they—and if you read the history, the city did it to itself. They had the resources to outlast a siege. But because they fought each other, because there were three, then four, then five groups that thought they had the Messiah, and then they fought each other to the death. No, we're the Messiah. No, we're the Messiah. No, we're going to beat the Romans. No, we're God's chosen people. No, and you're not. They ended up getting in a fight at one point near the Temple Mount where they accidentally set the entire grain reserves of the city on fire, which led to a famine which led to their weakening, which led to their being easily taken by the general Titus, and he destroyed everything. And he offered to set people free four times in the siege. And they rejected every opportunity. He said, I will leave your temple up. I will not kill you, but you must submit to Rome. They were like, nope. 
And so not one stone on the temple was left on it because he offered them four times and they rejected it. He's like, we're going to tear this thing apart. And he did. And 1.1 million people were killed. And that was a judgment that Jesus said came because they didn't recognize the king when he came. And all kinds of people say that's anti-Semitic. It's not anti-Semitic. The Jewish Messiah said to Jewish people, and the people who turned to him were all Jewish. So the people on both sides of it were Jewish. He's Jewish. Like, that is an inter-Jewish thing, okay? I don't see how you can call that anti-Semitic. It, it's, it's just real. It is whether or not you would accept the king. All right, now, let's look at a couple things related to this about overcoming unbelief and how humility can free us where pride will not, okay? So there's, there's two terrible attitudes that'll destroy us. The first is the attitude of the subject. So there's two groups of people other than the king in the parable. There's the servants, which is most focused on people who are Christians and believers. And there's the subjects. Those are the people that are under the jurisdiction of the king, but they're not in his service, which is closest to people who don't accept Jesus as king or Messiah. However, Christian, there can, Christians can still function like that. There are a lot of people who want to believe in Jesus and be saved and, and feel like Jesus is their Savior and not recognize that he is the unmitigated absolute king of everything. Does that make sense? And if that's your attitude, then you would be in the servants or the subjects in this group, okay? So one of the things that, that happens in parables, that most people, when you read parables in the Bible, you kind of wish they were a little longer. Now, most people don't feel that way about sermons. They don't wish they were a little longer. But in, but parables, they feel that way about because they're so short, right? But the, here's the thing about parables that people often don't understand. Parables are supposed to be really, really short. And you learn as much from what is not said in the parable as from what is said in the parable, okay? So think about it this way. The Greek word for good is agatha. So agatha, that's three syllables, okay? It would have cost Jesus three syllables to tell us that the king guy in this parable was a good guy. Three syllables. He could have said, there was a good nobleman. He very easily could have said that. And he chose not to. And you may be like, well, Nick, you can't really argue from silence. No, no, you can in a parable sometimes. Especially if you know the natural human response is to want that information. Right? Because his subjects hated him. Why did they hate him? Was he a bad guy? Was he terrible? Like the servant said he was like a hard man. But then when the other guys did it, they were told he gave them like whole cities. So how bad is the guy? Or what's going on? And Jesus could have just said he was a good nobleman and he became king and they didn't like him. But he doesn't. Why not? Right? Why not? And the answer is this. Because the moral quality of the king is 100% irrelevant. See, that's the point Jesus is making. You see, you and I, we're Americans and we think, I should have a say in who governs me, and I should have a say about everything, and if I don't like it and you do it to me anyway, it's completely unjust, and I have the right to blah, 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 right? And like, that's not how kingdoms work, okay? The king is the king, you aren't, and if you think your say matters, that is a, a emotional and theological indulgence that is not going to help you. Because then you think you have a say and you can tell people what's up and unbelief loves that. Unbelief is like, that's right. We don't like this. This is terrible. And that's not how it works. Like, it's, a, it, like, it's very short. He goes, he goes, there was a nobleman that went to another country to be made king. Like, it's a done deal. You understand? So like, the, I think the last person was Archelaus, one of Herod's sons. That like, 
He went to Rome. They crowned him like Tetrarch or something. He came back. He's the ruler. Like, that's it, man. And like, it would be one thing if there were a bunch of other nobles around this noble that were like, you know what? We hate this guy. We should get a bunch of nobles together and said the thing and be like, like the eight of us don't like this guy. You shouldn't make him king. That's not what happens, okay? What happens is a bunch of peasants, like get some guy in middle management who has like two ties. And they're like, hey, we don't like this guy. We should tell Rome because like Caesar is going to care that a bunch of Palestinian peasants, like, don't like the guy that he's going to make king. So let's write a little, like, statement of blah, blah, blahs and, like, stick it to the man. And so they, like, write in crayon some declaration of, like, we don't like this guy. And they send it with the middle managed dude who, like, has, like, 40 bucks to get on some ship. He gets there after the coronation's over, probably. He's like, hey, I don't know. He probably didn't even get to go see the emperor. Like, the emperor's going to let this guy come in and be like, hey, I'd like to suck against your decision. I don't think so. Like, I'm going bowling. Like, he's not going to do it, right? And so, the, and so Jesus is like, so they sent a delegation because they hate him. And he's like, and he was made king anyway. Of course, right? Nobody in Rome cares that you don't like him. Now, you might be like, well, that's not very nice. Well, you see, part of the issue here is that part of unbelief is you and I think that, like, we're good at picking kings. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but every democracy in the history of the world has collapsed. Every single one. There are no democracies in the history of the world that have survived. They all collapse. The Founding Fathers of America was like, well, you know, if we make a, we make a constitution and we have these, like, rights people can't screw with, and there's the, the government's not allowed to have a bank, so they can't bankrupt us, and, like, if we put all this stuff in place, we can slow down the destruction of the democracy, right? And they were like, and that's why Franklin has that famous quote, we gave you a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. Because they realized only a virtuous people can be free, and only a virtuous people can endure. But every empire of the world and every democracy in the world has died under two weights. Debt and the refusal to have children. So it always is. The refusal to have children in the middle and upper classes and debt. Have you looked at our national debt recently? We can't afford anything we're doing because we spend more than we produce. No one can thrive like that indefinitely. So are we that good? Are you that good? If we put you in charge of America, like, would everything get better? Why think that? Right? And like, you're under—so it's not just that, but also it's like, like, you get a say. You're like, well, it's a democracy. I get to pick who I'm under. No, you don't. You don't pick who you're under. Democracy just means the charity of the majority. Like, think about it. The governor of Wisconsin is Tony Evers, Okay? You can't get a more leftist Democrat than that, right? And the president of the United States is Donald Trump, okay? Now, did you vote for both of them? Right? Like, if you voted for both of those guys, like, I love you, but I don't understand you, okay? Like, I don't don't know what to tell you. Like, those are—they're not the same person, right? But, like, you don't get to pick. You don't be like, well, I voted for Trump, so I'm, I'm good with him, but I'm not going to listen to Tony. Like, or the other way around, you'd be like, well, I don't like Trump, but Tony Evers is my governor, but he's not my president. No, look, they're both ruling over you, right? You didn't pick the police. You didn't pick—you probably didn't pick your boss. Like, who, like, I, I'm going to go around and look for a really good boss, and then I'm going to apply for a job there. Like, maybe if you intern for eight years, but most people don't pick their bosses, right? You don't pick your parents, Some people don't even do a good job picking their husbands. Like, there's almost no authority that you're under that you have much reasonable say about. And yet, like, we behave like, you know, like, oh, people should listen to me. No, they shouldn't. 
No, they shouldn't. That's why everybody should have more personal responsibility, probably. And then we can help each other. It'll be great. But like, the whole idea that like, we would pick better people, we're qualified, and then that whole thing, and, and any of that whole system cares what we think, is crazy. And then we get really upset that the God of the universe, who is actually competent, actually is just, really does love his subjects desperately, is our divine father, right, is our redeemer, has done everything for us, is the, is the tyrant without tyranny, the perfect king, and like, we're like, we don't like this guy. We hate him. I think we should get to pick king. We should send a delegation and say that we don't want this guy. Right? And Jesus is like, you guys, listen, here's what's going to happen. You're going to send your delegation, okay, which is basically your lifelong snarkiness towards God. And basically what's going to happen is, he says it in just a simple line, he's made king anyway. He's made king anyway. That's it, man. Nobody cares. Right? And that's an important lesson, man. Especially for Americans. Right? Especially for us. Like, we just speak out. Like, we're an 18-year-old college student knows nothing about the field. Like, a professor who's been writing books in the field for, like, 40 years. And they're just like, Professor blah, blah, blah. I think blah, 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 blah. And the professor's not allowed to say anymore. I don't care what you think. You are a child. Right? So, we've got to get that straight. Now, you might be like, okay, well, okay, Nick, you're not helping with the disbelief part. Like, the part about, because it doesn't say if the king is good or not. No, it doesn't. But think about how Luke lines this up. Here's the parable, and then the triumphal entry and the clearing of the temple, right? So here's what he said. Here's basically what he says. He says, okay, now, you don't have a say in the king, okay? You don't have a say. So quit pretending you have a say. But let me tell you about the king. Okay, just let me tell you. There's three things that Luke tells us about the quality of the king you have no say over. Right? One, he rides down towards the city that's going to be destroyed by its unbelief. And the response he has to it is he bursts into tears. Okay, now, to put that in its proper context, he's at the moment, at that moment when he bursts into tears, he is at the moment of his highest level of acceptance. Okay? It's the, it's, the only th it's the only thing we use the word triumph with, with Jesus, okay? It's his triumphal entry. Like, he's literally riding down towards the city. There are hundreds of people around him who have seen his miracles, and they're rejoicing. They're shouting. They're praising God. They're praising God so beautifully, so powerfully. It's so right that when the Pharisee goes, hey, man, I don't think they should be calling you a God. And he's like, he's like, no. He's like, listen, if they stopped right now, nature would revolt, and the rocks would cry out, the Messiah is here. And at that moment, he's coming down this hill, and as you come over the top of the Mount of Olives, you're above the city of Jerusalem, and you can see the whole thing. And he sees the city, and he's, and he's, and he's, he's being cheered for. People are in love with him. They think he's amazing. And he sees the city, and every thought of his own glory is gone, and tears pour from his eyes. And he looks at the city and says, Oh, Jerusalem, if you only knew what would bring you peace? His, his longing for the redemption of even those who hate him and the city that would crucify him and cheat him and humiliate him and murder him. In the midst of his coronation, 
He blocks it all out. He looks at them, his worst subjects, and tears pour from his eyes. That is the quality of the real king. He didn't have to say good, right? The second thing is, is he gives, he does everything he can to defeat his own prophecy. He says, it's hidden from your eyes and the day is going to come when you'll be destroyed. And yet he gets down, he goes into the city, and he goes to the heart of the actual corruption that is destroying the capacity for people to see the beauty of God in the worship of the temple, where, where greed and, and, and money have twisted the gospel. And he goes into the temple courts, and he starts flipping over tables and clearing everybody out of there. And he, he gets to the heart of where there could be real faith. People can see God for who he is. And he's like, you don't get to corrupt this place. Because the only thing that can save somebody from unbelief is the beauty of the truth. And you will not ruin this place. And so he does everything he can to take that stuff out and to renew and take away the corruption and let people see God for who he is. Because he wants to give every human being the best possible chance to turn from unbelief and to turn to God and to be redeemed. Right? And then the last thing is something that I've read over a bunch of times. And it only really made sense to me this last week. I remember reading in a number of places where it says that Jesus rides a donkey or a colt that had never been ridden. And I always thought that because the triumphal entry is about the coronation of him as king, that it makes sense that a king would only ride a horse that no one else has ever ridden. That there's a certain purity to this. It's like it's only his horse, right? And then people have squabbled about how like, in, I think it's Matthew's gospel, um, the animal is referred to as a donkey. And here, Luke refers to it as a colt. I think actually in, in Matthew, there's like two animals. But anyway, and in, in here he talks about a colt, which is like a small horse. He can also refer to a young donkey this way. But basically, the word doesn't refer to the kind of animal it is. It refers to the age of the animal. So you have a young animal that no one's ever ridden. Now think about that for a second. There's no saddle. They throw some coats on the back of this thing, there's, right? And they put Jesus up on it. And then he rides it through a crowd of people yelling. Okay, see, like, we're just kind of like, oh yeah, Jesus, he's doing, he's riding a horse through the people. It's kind of like he's a general or a king or something. No, like, he has a death wish. That's what, that's what it means. <laughs> he's got a death wish. Like, I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse. Like, I, I actually had a friend when I was in grade school whose parents had horses, and we rode them all the time. Right? I, I like, grew up around horses. That's insane. Okay? Like, you don't do that. Like, the, like it takes, it takes days, oftentimes weeks, or months to break a horse. Okay? Like, I was just talking, I was talking to Sophie Hale. She works with horses a lot. She's a 17-year-old in the church. And she said they have a horse where she works um, that they have been trying to break this horse for more than a year. Like, you put the saddle on it, and while you're putting the saddle on it, she tries to get her head all the way around to bite you. Right? And then they tie the saddle on, and then they get out of the ring. And this horse runs around for 45 minutes trying to kick everything it can. It jumps up. It's like trying to buck the saddle off. He's like, I, she's like, I think I'll get you some video if you want for a sermon illustration. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Nobody in their right mind. There's, there is not one king in the history of the world that has ever ridden a horse no one has ridden. That's not a mark of kingliness. That's a suicide. You'd never do that to your king. You'd never be like, hey, king, why don't you get him on this horse? Nobody's ever touched him before. Like, he'd, be, he'd kill you because he's like, you're trying to kill me. No, what this actually demonstrates is that Jesus, in his presence, as the man who is the divine God-man, that a primal level of peace radiated from him, sufficient for him to no saddle, no bridle, 
people screaming everywhere, a young animal that had never been ridden, he can just get on it and ride it. And, that, and it just goes okay. Here we go. That, oh Jerusalem, like, oh, inter, in, insert your name. If you only knew this morning, what would bring you peace? Right? But you and I are not like that. You and I are like the horse Sophie was talking about. We're just bucking animals. And like, for Jesus to save us, we're like way harder to save than a colt for him. Like, he's got to like, he's got to work on us for months, years, some of us decades, just so that we will let him ride. Right? Some of us, some of us are bitted, saddled, and bridled by the world so easy. We are manipulated by wealth and power and flattery and gossip and climbing and all the things about building our kingdom. We like just let that stuff put its, its saddle on us and halter on us. It just rides us everywhere. It'll ride us to death. But when Jesus wants to saddle us and get on and actually guide us, we buck like a crazy animal. That's unbelief. That is the attitude that can kill you and will kill you. Okay, let's, let me say just a couple things about, um, about the other one, because I might not be able to come back to it in other weeks. So you've got these three servants, right? And he gives, he gives each of them a minna, and the last one's like, look, I hid yours away because you're kind of a terrible person, right? Like, you go to banks where you didn't even put in a deposit and you expect money. You go out to fields where you didn't plant a single seed and you expect to reap a crop. Like, you have no idea how the world works. You have no idea how productivity works. Like, you don't know what labor even is. And you think that, like, you're going to give a little bit of money, be gone for a year, and you're going to, like, make a pile of cash. And, like, it's—you're—you're—you lost your mind, right? And he's—he's not handled as though he is a sage, okay? Like, the guy's like, listen, dude, you didn't even put my money in the bank. Like, there's no sincerity in what you're saying. And I see this sometimes with people who are really struggling with unbelief. You listen to their objections, and it's like they just thought them up. Okay, this guy had like, between a year, between like eight months and two years to think up what he was going to say. And this is the best he came up with, right? You have to be a special kind of locked into your own mind to be in a position like that and insult the heck out of the person who can kill you to explain why you didn't do anything, okay? But so why does Jesus tell, Jesus tell it this way? And the answer is, so that you can get a preview of what you telling God will go like when you're like, I didn't believe, and this is why, and you're a jerk, and if you wouldn't let there be suffering in the world, or if my mom hadn't died, or if this wouldn't happen, I would have believed in you, but like, you're stingy, and you want me to serve you my whole life, and you do nothing for me, and like, listen, that's what it's going to sound like. It's going to sound like this guy. This guy being like, look, you don't, you don't care about anybody but yourself. All you want is your profits, right? Now, I could say a lot more about that, okay? Obviously, Jesus feels strongly about it, a lot stronger than me about it, okay? So, but put this in context for a second, okay? So one, look at what the servants who are rewarded say. Okay, it's really instructive. He goes, they say, Master, your money has earned you ten more. Your money has earned you five more. Do you notice that? They don't say, neither of those servants say, you know what, I worked really hard. 
No, see, they, they trust that if they, if they submit themselves to this king, it is his job to reward them, and it's his job to determine how good a job they did. It is their job to say, the only reason I was doing any investing in the first place was you gave me money. Or I wouldn't have been investing. You gave me money to buy the stocks. You gave me money to stuff. So then I did it. It went well. Here's, here's what your money got. Does that make sense? That's a very different attitude. Now, does that guy think his labor wasn't meaningful? No, he, he, he thinks it's meaningful. But it's not his job to tell the king what it's worth. It's his job to recognize that the king was gracious with him. He picked him. He gave him the, the minna. He had the opportunity to do this. It went well, and he's telling him what happened. And let the king say, take over 10 cities, right? Now, think about this for a second from the perspective of the third guy. The third guy is basically like, you are stingy, okay? Okay, now think about this for a second. Is this king investing? You see, Matthew 25, when they get talents, that's way more money. This parable is very different. A min is about nine grand, okay? Nine thousand dollars. That's not nothing. That's real money, man. It's real money, right? But it's not a lot of money in terms of investing. Like, if you wanted to turn somebody out to be an investor for you, and you're a lord that has enough money and power and servants to be made a king, and you take $90,000 out of the bank to spread between 10 guys— are you investing? Is that what you're doing? Right? If he can be made king, he probably doesn't have just 10 servants. He probably has got 100, maybe 1,000. These are not all of his servants. He picks 10. He takes $90,000 out of the bank. He gives each person $9,000. And he's going to be gone probably significantly less than two years. So it's a short investment time frame. It's not a lot of money. The money goes to people who haven't done this investment. And the people don't really have that much time to do it. So why is he doing this? Well, what is your biggest problem if you're made king? What's your biggest problem? Yeah, you need a bunch of people you can trust. That's what you need. You've got all these positions of authority that you have to now put people into— and you've got all these people who are graspers and hangers onto your wealth already. You need to find a bunch of people who have the character and the strength of mind and who want to work and who you can put in charge of stuff. So the whole thing's a ruse. It's not an investment. It's an investigation. He's trying to figure out who he can trust. Right? You see what Jesus is saying? Your whole—that's what your whole life is. He needs people—this king needs people who have proven themselves to him— who have proven themselves to everybody watching around them, and who have proven themselves to themselves. So that he can put them in charge of what he wants to put them in charge of. And he's saying to every person, he's saying, listen, your life is like that. Your whole life on this earth, your life before the return of the king is like that, okay? You should think of yourself as investing your life in others. But from God's perspective, in terms of eternity, it's just an investigation. Who and what are you, and who and what are you ready to become? And yeah, you may earn back 10 more minutes or 5 more minutes or whatever. That's not the point. Even the guy that made back 10 minutes, okay? So he made the guy 90 grand. He just became king. Who cares? 
You could spend your whole life for the Lord. You could accomplish amazing things for God. And you could come back to God in the judgment. You'd be like, look, you're one minute made ten. Like, yeah, so like, you th throw it on the pile of the eternal riches of God and see what difference it makes. Nothing. It's an investigation to see what you're made of, who you'll be. Will you come to him? Will you respond to grace? Will you grow in character? Will you become a believer of substance? Will you look and see what's good? Will you in embroil your heart in the beauties of God? Will you kill the flesh and turn away from sin? Will you love your neighbor as yourself? Will you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Will you let go the petty things that are tearing you apart, the sin that is clinging to you, and all the cares that so easily entangle you? Will you not allow yourself to be choked by other cares? And will you be fruitful for God with all your heart? That's the question. That's the only question. That's only ever been the question. And that is the confrontation that we require the most. What will you do in the face of unbelief? Because we all have it. It's not like, do you or don't you? The flesh, the part of us that doesn't like God, right, is always producing unbelief. It's, a, it's an unbelief factory, and it's inside of you. And the Bible says you must put it to death and turn to the Spirit. And that is, that's not just a once-for-all choice, but it is in addition to being a once-for-all choice, a daily and even sometimes momentary choice. The, our war with unbelief is the war for our soul. It is the war for our character. It is the war for our pleasure. It is the war for our peace. It is the war for the redemption of the image of God in us. It is the war for our neighbor's hearts. It is the war for our children's lives. It is the war for everything. And that's why you can love your neighbor. Because your real enemy is right here. And this king can set you free. But the treatment for unbelief, and the only treatment for unbelief, is confrontation, and if necessary, terrifying threat. But remember the one who gives you that threat. The one who bursts into tears over the city. The one who clears out the temple. And the one who is the one who brings peace to the, the horse that's never been ridden. Let's pray. Father, um, <laughs> I don't know what you would have said if you were here preaching on this. Um, but I pray that you would use the stuff I said that was faithful to you and to your, your written word and to your risen Christ and that you'd help us embrace it with all our hearts. And I pray that you'd help us to use the ritual of communion, the Lord's Supper, to remember again what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Before, um